doing a continuation of where we started this morning in talking about Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24, due to its size as well as its complexity, uh, makes it extremely difficult to try to accurately explain it in one lesson. And so I felt the best way to go about this would, would be, as I'm doing here, is that this morning we did an overview and a framework of what this book looked like so that we could have a good handle on it. And then tonight we could go deeper into some of the uh, pictures and challenging images that are given here. And then Wednesday night will be your chance for questions, rebuttals, and the like as we look a little bit more into some of those things on Wednesday night. So uh, as a little bit of a, a recap from this morning, as you have your Bibles there in Matthew 24, you have Jesus leaving the temple complex. And what he has done is for three chapters expressed condemnation on the religious leaders in Jerusalem, proclaimed woes upon them, and ends in chapter 23 by saying, I tried to rescue you, I tried to bring you in, just like a hen would to a brood of chicks, but you absolutely refuse to do so, and God is not with you, your house is left to you desolate. And as they walk out of the temple complex and begin to go over across the Kidron Valley and onto the Mount of Olives, the disciples have an important question. They want to know, well, when is this going to happen? When are these things going to be? And what are the signs of that event that's happening? As I mentioned this morning, unfortunately, Matthew 24 is typically ripped well out of its context and often applied to all kinds of things, even things that are happening right now in the world. Often Matthew 24 is used as a point of, of doing that. And we, we talked about a few spots where we see that that's not the case. But as I mentioned this morning, and I'll give to you again, that Matthew 24 and verse 34 is very important, where Jesus says there that that generation would not pass away until all these things Take place, And so that sets the table of the context of what Jesus was talking about. Now, one other thing that I would like to do before we, we get going in this is you might find it useful tonight or at least in your studies um, later in the week as you look at this more deeply in Matthew 24 is that there are parallel texts that are given in Mark and Luke's account, which makes it a lot easier to understand. One of the reasons why that's easier is Mark's account and Luke's account seem to be more written to Romans and Greeks and Gentiles, whereas Matthew often supposes that you know the Old Testament scriptures really well and often is considered to have been written more to a Jewish audience. It's the language that you hear in what Matthew says. So for example, when you read Luke 21 and verse 7, when you hear what they ask Jesus, this parallels to Matthew 24 and verse 3, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And that is how I presented it this morning. The concern that the disciples have or is twofold. One, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this Jerusalem judgment going to happen? And then what is the sign of the things that are going to lead up to it? You'll notice that Luke, or I read it backward. Luke, then Mark. Mark says the same thing. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. 
When you read it then from, from Matthew's side, and I made the point this morning about there also being two questions here. When will these things be? And when will be, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And we'll talk about that in more detail uh, in a few minutes. But as we noted this morning, you have the same two questions being put forward. And I know it looks like three. And I think one of the reasons why the frequency of seeing three was uh, way on back. The, the King James Version read this as uh, the sign of your coming and the end of the world. And that I think kind of pushed that trajectory of, okay, well, these things is Jerusalem, but then it says into the world. So now we must be talking about something else. But there are no modern major translations that read it this way. All of them read the end of the age. And we'll talk about why, if I remember, as we go through the lesson. If I don't, beat me up afterward and remind me of that. All right, so what I want to do then is talk about some of the details that are found in this text. And then what we'll do at the end is we'll talk about why any of this matters, because it does matter. There's an awful lot of important messages that are found in this chapter that are unfortunately frequently lost due to the complexity of the text and often all the end times things that are plugged into it. First, let's talk about the, the signs. As I mentioned this morning, you have from verse 4 all the way to verse 35 the answering the questions in the reverse. They don't, the disciples want to know when will these things be and what will be the sign. Jesus starts with the signs in verse 4 and takes those signs all the way to, to verse 35. I would summarize what you see in verses 4 through 14 as a description of all the instability that is going to go on in the time that is leading up to the temple's destruction in Jerusalem's fall. You will notice in some of the descriptions that are given, not only the wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation that we talked about uh, this morning in verses 6 and 7, but you'll notice it also talks about even false messiahs. Now, what's interesting about that is the book of Acts tells us a lot about those. There's three different people that are listed in Acts, in Acts 5.36, 5.37, 21.28, and talking about how the so-and-so person rose up and how it completely fizzled and didn't work out. And if you remember, that was called Gamaliel's advice in, in Acts chapter 5, as he names two people who tried this whole on the Messiah uprising, went to nothing, and that's why he says, just let them be and let's see what happens, is, is his advice. Well, that's because you have there in the first century this constantly happening where people were saying, I'm the one who's going to set Jerusalem free and lead this revolution and, and start all of the, the kingdom of God on, on earth. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. Be aware that that is going to take place. You will notice there's also a description of uh, verse 7, earthquakes and famines. Uh, turmoil occurring in that first century. You can read about that. And I mentioned that this morning that I will leave Google and history books to you to go read about all the wild things that were going on. One of my favorites is that within, you had uh, four emperors within one, about a one year span. That's, that's pretty amazing. And you imagine if we had presidents all killing each other all within a one year span four times. It, a little bit of political upheaval going on uh, between 68 and 69 AD. It was pretty chaotic at, at that point. You'll notice that he also says there in, in verse 9 uh, that the 
disciples were going to be delivered up and over to tribulation and they were going to be persecuted in, in that way. Uh, my proof of that would be the whole book of Acts. I mean, that's just what you see happening in the book of Acts is all the disciples are constantly under persecution. Remember when Saul ravages the church, that's what causes the whole church to scatter uh, as they then run for their lives because of the severity of the persecution uh, that is going on. And that's why in verse 13, it just simply says uh, the, there's a call for endurance. And uh, you might remember when we studied Revelation in our Sunday morning Bible class, how often the book of Revelation made the exact same point. Here's the call for endurance. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be upheaval. It's going to be chaotic. There's going to be persecutions. Things are going to be flipped on its head, but that's okay. Just hold on. Call for endurance to be able to make it through uh, to, to the very end. And then I want you to also notice verse 14. Verse 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And and sometimes people read that and go, well, this shows that this couldn't have been talking about the first century because you just told me in verse 34 where it says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And right here it says that the gospel of the kingdom has to be spread throughout the whole world. It is amazing, though, that when you come to Colossians, the Apostle Paul twice says in his day and time that the gospel had gone through the whole world. He says it twice. He says it in verses five and six, as well as in Colossians one, verse 23. The whole world had already heard the gospel at that point, well before the destruction of Jerusalem. Sometimes we have this idea that, you know, the gospel just hasn't made it to the whole world yet. And Paul says, actually, it already made it. And it really says something about the work of the apostles and the disciples in the first century that they could stand there and say, everybody's heard it. It's made it all throughout the globe already. It's an amazing statement that is made there. So even verse 14 does not knock out this paragraph that stated in verse 34 that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so a description of the difficulties that are going on in verse 11, the false prophets will be arising. In verse 12, that lawlessness is going to increase. Verse 10, many are going to fall away, betray one another. It will be difficult not only in terms of politically, but I hope you see that he's even talking about even among Christians and among their own families. This was going to be a really hard time uh, during the first century. I would make the side argument since I have a minute and say, this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when you get to about verse 25, 26 there when he starts giving instructions of, you know, it's fine to marry, but you might not want to do that because of this difficulty that's about to happen. It was going to be extremely hard in the first century. And he presents to them a re- some reasoning like it is hard because you might have your interests divided in the midst of a persecution, in the midst of this kind of upheaval that is going on. And so Paul says, not the Lord, but I say these things to you as an advice to you because of how hard it was going to be. For us, it's hard for us to get our minds around how difficult it was. We get a few glimpses of it in the scriptures, but you have a consistency of Jesus and Paul saying this was going to be a pretty severe time. But let's talk about the fun thing, right? Abomination of desolation. That, 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 the verse 15, it, it jumps right off the page. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And of course, when you have the phrase, let the reader understand, 
You're already being told I'm saying something hard. I'm saying something that requires a little bit of work and a little bit of digging. So I'm going to give you two ways to understand this. The easy way and the hard way. You can decide which way you want to remember this. Here's the easy way. The parallel account is in Luke 21 and verse 20. Rather than saying, when you see the abomination of desolation standing or not not be in the holy place, verse 16, then flee to Judea, flee from who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Notice Luke just reads it this way. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. There's the easy way. If you like the easy way, there's the easy way. (laughs) The abomination of desolation is talking about when the Roman army would begin to make its way into Judea, then the people who saw that happening were supposed to run to the mountains. I made the point this morning, if this is talking about the end of the world, running to the mountains will not help you. If this is final judgment, end of the world, second coming of Christ, the mountains have no value to you whatsoever. That's not going to work. You can't run from the second coming of Christ. This is clearly talking about a judgment that is happening in Judea so that he can say, when you see the abomination of desolation, or Luke's words, the desolation coming near as the armies begin to come into Judea and surround the city, then you need to run, run, run. Let's do the hard way, though. It's fun to do the hard way, too. All right. Abomination of desolation, he says, as spoken of by the prophet Daniel. You'll read three different places in Daniel's prophecy where there is an abomination of desolation. And in each of those passages, and as much as I don't, you know, I got more time, but I still don't have enough time. So maybe Wednesday night we can have more time. But go read these three places. Each of those passages talk about a foreign nation coming into Jerusalem and desecrating the temple. All three of them have that focal point. And I believe that Daniel chapter 9 is probably the one that Jesus is particularly referencing. Because as he's talking about the the abomination of desolation, Daniel says in chapter 9 verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy city and sanctuary. Well, what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? The very same thing. He's been saying, not one stone will be left upon another. That's what he said in Matthew 24 in verse 2. As the disciples are saying, look at the beautiful buildings. How could God be destroying this? Not one stone will be left upon another. The city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to fall. It's going to be the end. And that is exactly what Daniel prophesied was going to happen. Daniel saw this in his vision of 70 weeks. And so there is that passage in Daniel 9 in verse verse 26. So it's absolutely contextually perfect to what Jesus is talking about. He just says, hey, you know, Daniel already told you this, <laughs> that when you see this foreign nation coming and begin to bring about its desolation of city and temple, then what you need to do is run, run, run. And that's what you see then in verses 16, 17, and 18. Do not go back into the house. Do not turn back at all and get a cloak. You need to run. One of the reasons why this talks about why it's so important to run is because when the Roman armies did surround Jerusalem and began to lay siege to it, what is recorded for us by Josephus and other historians is that the, the Jerusalem and its city locked the gates and kept people, everybody inside. And that would make sense. The Romans have surrounded it. 
And that siege lasts for a, a few years. It is a, a pretty intense time in Judea as the Romans are sweeping through Judea because of their rebellion and begins to cause this onslaught that, that's going on. And so when you see the abomination of desolation, you need to run. Don't go back. You do not want to be caught in the city when that siege begins and the Roman armies then make their way and start to attack Jerusalem. This is described in verse 21 as a great tribulation that was, was going to go on. I won't speak much to that. If you enjoy history, Josephus wrote in the first century, and he's more famous for his book Antiquities, but the book you want to read is called Wars because that is his accounting of what happened in the Jerusalem siege in the first century. And so if you really have a stomach for it, and I guarantee you we don't, it's rough. Uh, he describes how awful it is. And that's why Jesus starts saying words like this um, in like verses, verse 20. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. If this is the second coming, what does it matter if it's winter or a Sabbath? It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. But winter and a Sabbath makes a very big deal because the Jews enforced a Sabbath day journey. And Jesus is saying, you need to run, run, run to the mountains and don't stick around. So pray that this invasion does not happen when it is Sabbath. Pray that it's not in winter because you're not going to have anywhere to stay when you run to the mountains. And so you're going to be exposed to the elements. So pray that it's not the Sabbath. Pray that it is not in winter. And then I want you to notice what is stated here. In verse 20, in verse uh, 21, sorry, my eyes are a little on the dizzy side. Verse 19, it says, Alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in that day. Why do you think Jesus says, Woe to the pregnant and those who have nursing infants? Well, unfortunately, what we have recorded for us is the length of the siege was so great that they began to eat their children because of how severe it was. They looked at it and said, my child's going to die anyway because the siege. And so that's what we're going to do. And that's recorded for us in history as well. And that helps you give a little bit of a sense of the severity of what Jesus talks about here because sometimes people have a difficulty with verse 21 of this being a great tribulation that has not been from the beginning, nor will it ever be. There were things that happened in that siege and what took place in Jerusalem that are gruesome. And I'll kind of just leave it at that. And that's why that's that's put there in that way. And in verse 22, Jesus says, if God did not cut that time short, there just wouldn't have been anybody left because of how bad it's going to be. You have then in verses 23 through through 28, just a picture of the swiftness of this judgment and the destruction that is ultimately going to happen. And so he warns them. People are going to say, there's the Christ. People are going to rise being false prophets, claiming to perform signs and wonders. Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Remember what I've told you. Don't chase them is the big warning that is given here. And in verse 27, Here's the swiftness of it, just as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I want you to hold that phrase in your mind because I'm going to use that a couple of times here. But notice he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And sometimes when we hear the coming of the Son of Man, we can default into, well, that must be the second coming. 
And I've already shown you verse 34, which says all these things must take place before this generation passes away. So you have a conflict there if that's what he's talking about. But there is an explanation to what these signs are all about in talking about this coming uh, of the Son of Man. You'll notice he says it again in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet call, loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. And I know as soon as you read that, you go, well, that has to be the end. I mean, that just, that just sounds like it. But of course, I'll go back to observing Verse 34, Jesus said this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So everything that he keeps saying is still in that umbrella of all of these things have to have to take place. Now, here's some passages just to note, and it's not all of them, but just a few places where a lot of this language is used. In just a moment, I'm going to give you one passage so that you're not inundated by all of those and one you can remember. But I just wanted to give you a sense of it's not unusual for God to talk about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and stars falling from the sky, and God coming in the clouds, and angels and judgment and winds. This is very, very common by the Old Testament prophets. Our problem is we just don't read those a lot. So when we read Matthew 24, we think it kind of sounds unique. Here's my one passage to show this out. I'm going to first read what it says, and then I'll show you who it was about. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. That sounds like the end, doesn't it? Took it out of context. Back up to verse 1. The prophecy was against Babylon. It's really fascinating that God uses this kind of language over and over and over again to either describe a judgment of peoples or nations or the end of the world. And just because God uses language like that doesn't tell you who he's talking about until he says it. So could he be talking about the world? Well, sure, he could be. Could he be just talking about a nation? He could be. The context has to tell you what he's talking about. In Isaiah chapter 13, he tells you at the very beginning, this is an oracle concerning Babylon. And then he unloads that language where it sounds like it's the end of the world because it was the end of the world for Babylon. That they were done. It was over. It was lights out. It's the finish for them. And here in Matthew 24, here's God using the exact same kind of language and terminology 
to indicate this is the end of physical Israel as God's people, as this Jewish nation. The temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to be over for them. And that's why Jesus pronounced those woes and gave those warnings that he tried to warn them and bring them back, but they refused. And that's why this judgment is ultimately going to fall. Now, one of the things that I think is so important about these pictures is when God uses these pictures, one of the key points that he wants his people to understand in any day and time is that you're supposed to look up and see Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Is that as a judgment happens, as a nation falls, as wickedness is dealt with, you're not supposed to look at the world and go, well, that was really random. How about that? You're supposed to look at the world and go, God did that. You're supposed to look at the world and say, Christ is on the throne and he's reigning and he's putting enemies under his feet. And here's another example of it. And that's what's happening when God talks this way is calling it the son of man coming in the clouds or God coming in the clouds. Why is he coming in the clouds? It's a picture of judgment, putting another rebellious group of people under his feet and destroying them because of their sins. Here's one of my favorite proofs of that, and I'll walk through it slowly so that you can get the sense of it. When Jesus is on trial with Caiaphas, listen to the back and forth that they have. Here is Jesus remaining silent, though he stands on trial before Caiaphas. And so the high priest in Matthew 26, verse 63, said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now listen to what Jesus does here. Jesus says, you have said so. And I tell you, all right, he's talking to Caiaphas. I tell you from now on, you will see. Now guess what he tells Caiaphas he's going to see. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, is Caiaphas still alive waiting for the second coming of Christ when he comes in the clouds? And No. When Christ comes in the clouds, when the Son of Man comes in the clouds, it's a picture of judgment. And here's Caiaphas saying, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, yes. And guess what? It's going to be proven to you when this destruction happens. I'm going to bring that destruction. I'm coming in the clouds with power and judgment against this very nation. And so Jesus even tells Caiaphas that he would see uh, him coming in the clouds. And the only way that you would be able to tell Caiaphas he'd see Jesus coming in the clouds is the point we made earlier. When judgment falls, you're supposed to look up and say, that was Christ. That's Christ on the throne. He's still reigning. He's still putting enemies under his feet. In fact, as that happens, I want to remind you that that is the essence of the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, we're told there that go and proclaim the good news. And the good news has this message. Your God reigns. And Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10 is really an amazing picture of here's the gospel message. God reigns and he vindicates his people. 
And God reigning then encompasses, that's why we can have forgiveness of sins. That's why we can be his peoples, because God is in full charge, in full control. He's ruling. He's established his kingdom. We're constituents of it. We're enjoying the blessings, all because of this great message, your God reigns. And notice that that is exactly where the text goes. I'll bring in the Luke account as the side-by-side for this. In Luke 21, verse 27, the parallel account, when they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, but when these things take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. Notice the picture of the son of man coming in the clouds with power means God's people look up and say, God's judging and we're being vindicated and we're seeing our redemption yet again. That's the takeaway that's written in the Luke account, which parallels what's happening in, in uh, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Same picture is being given. And coming in the clouds with great glory and great power means our redemption is near. So back in Matthew 24, notice the three things that are observed here that are very important. Verse 32 Here's the meaning of the signs. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at at the very gate. So this picture of a fig tree is an illustration to use that just like you see the fig tree and it produces leaves and that means summer is near. So also when you see the armies, You're supposed to know there's no more waiting. There's no more time. It is time for Jerusalem's destruction. And thus, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And verse 35 is also very important. You'll notice Jesus says there's no changing of this outcome. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is going to happen. My words are more stable than all creation. This is point here. As I just told you about this destruction, it will certainly occur. And so you can rest assured that that would be what was going to happen. And so from verse 4 all the way to verse 35, here are all the signs that are being given. All right, second part, but it won't be as long. Don't worry. Back in verse 3, we saw there are two questions. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of, of, of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? We just noted that the Son of Man coming is another way to speak of God's judgment. It's shown in verse, verse 27 as well as in verses 29-31. Notice that your coming and the end of the age. When the disciples ask that question of Jesus, after Jesus has said, not one stone will be left upon another, what age do you think they probably had in mind that they were concerned was coming to an end with that picture? I would submit to you the Jewish age, that first age, the law of Moses and that whole system was now coming to a complete end because without the temple and without God in that temple, That could no longer be the place where they would be able to find atonement, come to God, any of those things. And they understood that. Thus, what are the signs that this is all coming to an end, that this is the end of this system, the end of this age? And then they're also asking in verse 3, 
When will these things be? And I quickly mentioned it this morning. You will notice that Jesus says in in verse 36 that the day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but the father only. And I make the observation to you that only the father knew the precise timing because that time had not yet been determined. And I take you to 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16 as a help for that where you have Jesus or excuse me, where the apostle Paul talks about that the Jewish people were filling up their sins to the uttermost. And there is this image that God uses to indicate that eventually all the sins kind of build up and fill up and then justice and judgment has to come. And so that time had not been determined yet because they were still filling up their sins, just like the apostle Paul had said, but the father knew the time in which he was going to bring about that ultimate judgment. Verses 37 through through 39, we see the connection to the, the days of Noah. Do not let the connection to the days of Noah throw you. You will notice that Jesus' connection, his parallel is not just as in the days of Noah, the whole world was destroyed by water. And so now when I come in judgment, the whole world will be destroyed by fire. That's not his connection. That's not his parallel. And sometimes that's presumed upon the text that this must be the second coming because it's the day, like the days of Noah. But notice the parallel is life will continue as normal and then judgment will come suddenly. That's the parallel he makes. They were given in marriage, eating and drinking. They were just having life as normal, verse 38. And they were unaware of judgment to come, verse 39. So it will also be with the Son of Man. And that's illustrated in verses 40 and 41. Verses 40 and 41 are your probably one of two key rapture texts. The idea that when Christ comes, people are suddenly going to disappear. And it comes from here. Two people will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. So he's illustrating the suddenness. Now, again, I will draw you back to what has been our context, though. Did we suddenly leave the temple in Jerusalem destruction and now we're talking about the end of the world all of a sudden. Uh, That's not where we're at. They want to know, back in verse 36, the day and the hour. The day and the hour of what? When the temple's going to fall. That's our context. That's what they're wanting to know. That's the information they're seeking. And what he's pointing out is one will be taken, one one will be left. Very simply, some were going to be captured and some were not. Again, I would draw you to history, go read Josephus, but that's what was going on at that time. As the Romans came and the armies surrounded, some were killed, some were captured, and some went through some pretty horrible circumstances. And not only do these accounts uh, 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 speak, speak of that, but you also have that stated over in, in Luke's account as well, which also speaks about some would be captured and some would not be captured and some would be killed. All of this is to illustrate the suddenness is if you were out in the field and you were out there grinding grain, did you think this was going to happen? You wouldn't have been out there if you knew this was going to happen. You were just carrying on life like normal and then boom, here's the suddenness of this judgment. That's what he's trying to illustrate. And that's why he then turns around in verse 42 and you better have your eyes open. Stay awake, watch and be ready because when you see the abomination of desolation, that is the army surrounding, you need to run. 
All right, one more really important thing that I want to focus on in the time that we have this evening. I want you to notice that in this text, Jesus spends some time talking about the problem of delayed judgment. And this is a consistent thing when it comes to the way God brings about his justice and his judgment. You will notice that the question that we looked at this morning in verse 45, who will be the faithful and wise servant that's ready when the master uh, comes? Verse 46, blesses the servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. We made that point this morning. Now I'd like for you to observe the other side of that point in verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to notice that here's the problem of God's delayed just judgment. Is he says, what's going to happen is there are going to be people who are going to plunge themselves into sin and self-indulgence. Did you see that picture in verse 49? He starts beating his fellow servants and eating and drinking with drunkards. Basically, he's mistreating everybody and doing whatever he wants. Why does he do that? Look at verse 48. Because he says the master's delayed. Because so much time goes by before God brings about his judgments, people start thinking that God's not going to judge. It's a very big problem. In fact, you might note that that was the very point of, for Noah in his day. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness by the apostle Peter, and nobody listened to him. Things are just going to continue on, continue on. Everything's fine. Not going to be concerned because life seems to be going on as always. In fact, you will notice back in chapter 24 and verse 12, he says it in the same way. In verse 12, he says, he says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of money will grow cold. There's going to be more wickedness as people see the delay of God's judgment, which is going to cause people to not love as they ought, which is going to increase more wickedness. I know we don't see that at all happening right now. And it always happens as warm-ups to judgment is that everybody thinks judgment is not going to happen, that judgment is delayed, and therefore we can do whatever we want to do. In fact, I would argue that every day that goes by seems to confirm that God is not going to judge our city. That's just the way we think. We look at it and go, God away with it another day. So he's not going to do anything. So I guess I'm safe for another day and tomorrow I'll keep on sitting just like I did today and just like I did yesterday because I don't believe that anything is ever going to happen. And I want you to hear Jesus saying, that's the warning. He says, who's going to be found doing his will when he comes? Because what is going to be the tendency is for God's servants to mistreat other servants and no longer express the love of Christ as they ought to because the master appears to be delayed. And interestingly enough, Peter, who was talking about the second coming, made the very same point. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Notice the same thing. They're going to do what they want to do. Why are they doing this? Why are they following their own desires? Well, here's what they say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's not going to come. He's not going to judge. We're all going to be fine. It's no big deal. Just carry on and keep doing what you're doing. And God is constantly trying to show us, be warned, because my judgments are sudden and you need to be ready and do not allow God's delay in judgment to make us believe that we are getting away with our sins. I have a simple illustration of that. Did you ever have a time when your mother told you, just wait till your father gets home? Did you sit there and go, oh, good, I'm off the hook. Yay. No, you were like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, it's the same picture. God is saying there's a time where judgment's coming and you're in this waiting period until that judgment comes. And what we are supposed to learn from all of this is when the world appears to be shaken, everything seems to be upside down, we're supposed to look up and see that God's ruling over it all. Things are going on in the Middle East. We look up and know Jesus is ruling over it all. When there's war in Russia and in Ukraine, we look up and we know God's at work. And he's ruling over it all. And whatever future things happen, and the world appears to be upside down, we look up and we know that God is ruling over it all. And all the things that have happened in the world in the past, we look up and we know that Christ is ruling over it all. And the end to us is simply, as Peter asked, so how should we live our lives knowing that the promise of his coming is certain? Just as certain as he judged Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Persia, and Rome, and Jerusalem, that same word promised is he's coming back and he's going to judge again. And we need to then live our lives in accordance with the belief of his coming. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this such important reminder to always look up to you and know that you are on the throne and that you are ruling over all things and that every single judgment against nations and powers is your hand standing against them. And Lord, we pray that we would always see your hand at work. We would never look around and not think that you are not active in this world or not on the throne. And Lord, I pray that that will always give us a sense of confidence, a sense of faith and a sense of ease when Life seems to go upside down and the world seems to be spinning out of control that we will know that you are over it all, that you have your hand in this, that you're moving these pieces and that you are accomplishing your will and your purposes. And so, Lord, strengthen our faith. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are ready, that we are looking for your coming and forgive us for when we have treated each other in ways that we ought not to because we have felt like your coming is delayed. And forgive us, Lord, for when we have engaged in sin and self-indulgences because we believe that your coming is delayed. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with an intensity that today would be the day 
and that we would always make our decisions under the belief that today may be the day when we would stand before you in judgment. And so help us to not take for granted the future. Help us to not take for granted the brevity of our lives. And Lord, help us to live lives so that at any moment of any day, we would be ready to see the coming of your son face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. I invite you to come to Jesus. And if, if that was information overload, come Wednesday night. And I'll do my best to try to help you out with all that and explain some of those things. But I hope that gives you an even better framework of the things that we've been looking at.